Love those songs. When you think about the the reckless love of God, of course, when we think of the word reckless, we're thinking of like, you know, violent. and But that's, that's quite the opposite, is that there was no uh, restraining or holding back in his demonstration and his exhibition of love toward us when he went to Calvary's cross. I love that. Um, I remember there was a sermon by Billy Graham that I heard years ago that was, he, he titled it The Hound of Heaven to describe Christ. He's the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he used the analogy of a hound dog. You know, I know he found me in, in uh, places where, um, and, and in a sinful condition in which only he would know how to reach me. Isn't that amazing how he finds us where we're at so that he can take us to where he's at? Amen. I also like the idea of that, um, that next song when it speaks about the, the lion and the lamb, which describes the two comings of Jesus Christ. His first coming, he came as a lamb in his first coming. He came to be the sin offering. But when he comes again, which I believe is soon, he's coming as a lion with a sword coming out of his mouth to, to conquer uh, the kingdoms of this earth and to establish the millennial reign. So it describes our Lord to us very, uh, uh, very specifically these, these songs. I really like them. Thank you for, the sh- for that, you guys. That's uh, awesome. I have to go back down there and get something to clean my lenses because I see a bunch of... You guys look like you're in a mist and I hope I have one. There we go. And anybody that knows me, <laughs> there's one thing I can't, ta- I can't put up with, and that's that my lenses are not clean. So uh, you, you'll get to, uh, to that point sometime in your life, maybe when you start to wear glasses, that um, you start to appreciate your, your eyesight. You start to realize what a gift it is, right, man? So give me a second here. We're going to go uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to finish the last half of the chapter at chapter 17. And one of the things that uh, Paul does in this letter, and we spent a good amount of time in the first three chapters, is that he explains to us in a, in, in, in a kind of a, a mind-boggling way, if you will, all of the things the Lord did for us and has done for us and who he is. And, and the whole idea of for instance, um, predestination and election. And those concepts that sometimes, those doctrines are really kind of hard to understand, but that doesn't mean we don't talk about them. And we try to explain it best we can, and we're always going to fall short when it comes to the attributes of God. We can try and use analogies and examples, but there's no way we can totally comprehend it. We can get a grip of it and, and, and uh, uh, by faith accept them. So he shows us in the first three chapters, uh, what I like to say, our beliefs. But, you know, it's not enough just to have beliefs. And, and just bear with me because I want to kind of transition to where we're at now. He shows us our beliefs so that they can move into behavior. Now notice what I did there. Be, beliefs, 
behavior. So if you want to understand what's going on, he's, it's good to have beliefs, you know. But if they don't move into behavior, what, who cares what you believe? Uh, let's do it this way. There are, um, there are creeds. That uh, comes from the Latin uh, and the Spanish word creencias, which is to believe something creeds, but creeds, the Christian creeds, should lead to Christian conduct. You guys see where I'm going with this? So it's, we, we should know what we believe. We should understand who he is, right? How salvation works. But if it doesn't translate into action, then um, I would question your beliefs and your creeds. Whether or not you actually um, wholeheartedly accept them. So one thing to acknowledge them, another thing to put them uh, into actions. Uh, another way to look at this, uh, and uh, I love doing this uh, when I'm studying, is finding a lot of different ways to say the same thing. So, Pastor, you're so extra. Thank you. I am. So, for instance, doctrine, which is what we saw in the first three chapters, always leads to duty. Yeah, I did it again, huh? Doctrine, deed, duties, creed, conduct, beliefs, behavior. Another one, pra uh, principles uh, always lead to practice. So kingdom principles is what we learn from, uh, from Paul here in Ephesians, especially the first three chapters. Those principles should always lead to practice, kingdom practices. Amen? Uh, the first three chapters, again, uh, lead to um, uh, attitudes. They form attitudes in what we read that should always lead to actions. Uh, actions from attitudes, right? Beliefs to behavior. Creeds to conduct. Principles to practice. And the short way of saying we should live what we believe, what we preach. Paul's trying to convince them that there's a new life in the Christian. We're born again. The old has passed, we're new creatures. Correct? Anybody here agree with me to say amen? Oh, good. Whew, I was wondering if you guys even believe me. Because this is the word. So we're going to look at some stuff here. And if we go to, starting at verse 17 in Ephesians 4. Uh, let me just read it, and then we'll pray, and then I'm going to go beyond this, I think. But let me just read it. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians, that you, now notice the word must. Is it like, not a recommendation. It's not like a, a counseling session. I counsel you to, or uh, like, I'd like you to, no, it's, I, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then he describes how they walk. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. We're not ignorant about the things of God. We just went through three chapters, right, of doctrine, right? And then he says, due to the hardness of their heart, the reason that they're alienated from God, the reason that their understanding is darkened, and the reason that they, their minds are futile, and, and the way they walk is because what? The hardness of the heart. See, this is not a, 
mind thing, but you can't get the gospel to your heart unless it passes through your brain first. But it can't get to your heart ever, it's hardened. I'll talk a little bit more about the Greek word that's used there for hardened. Very interesting, actually. Uh, and they become callous. Oh, callous and hardened are the same meat word. They become, that. what becomes har- callous? The heart. Uh, that, and we uh, given our, themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we have no problem, or the Gentiles have no problem practicing what they believe and what we used to believe we had no problem practicing those things well now that we're Christians now that we understand doctrine now that we have our beliefs now that we know who God is our practice should be different and he said it must we must not walk any longer like the Gentiles do which in reality you could easily say like we used to Amen? How about we pray for the sermon? That was my brief introduction there. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so we can look at it together, if necessary, word by word and verse by verse and chapter by chapter in context so that we can't just make of it what we want, but we allow it to speak to us. We pray for the help of the Holy Spirit and that you would deal with our hearts and that we would leave today different than how we arrived. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So he reminds, Paul does, he's reminding here in these first couple verses that we have up there on the screen that the Ephesians who are reading this letter, uh, because he wrote it from a Roman prison, uh, that they must avoid, right? Must is in there. Anybody underline that? Must. Right? They must what? Avoid the behavior that denies what they profess as their faith and that dishonors God. See, one of the things or reasons why we try to avoid sin is not so much, although it's a part of the variable of the equation, not so much that it harms us, but also one of the things I think that helped me in my young Christian walk was to realize that my sins or those things that dishonor God offend Him. Why would I want to offend the one that loves me? It's not just, it will cause you harm. There are, no, there are consequences for our sins, and that's on you. But you're not impacting just yourself. Who else is being impacted? Your families, people around you that know you, that are impacted. You know, and it impacts God. Joseph, when he was tempted to uh, go with Potiphar's wife, he was all alone in a, in a house with her. And he's a young man and she's looking for ways to seduce him and finally got him alone and grabbed him by his, by his coat of many colors probably. And guess what? He ran off. He avoided it. Why? He says, that, uh, how could I do this against my God? Not only would he be offending her, sinning with her, he would also be impacting a husband and a family, right? And, let's not forget God, right? Do you see how that works? We have to think in those terms that what we allow ourselves to do, we need to ask, is this going to offend God? 
Not only that, but one of the things that I try to teach my son, Sam, is when you have to make a decision about your behavior, is this a good thing as a Christian? You have to ask, we, people go, how do you live the Christian life? You live it by doing these things that we're talking about. You, you have to live it intentionally. It's like you can't live Christianity by accident or, you know, coincidentally. It's intentional. You have made a decision to follow Christ. And then we still have to deal with the world. We still have to deal with our enemy. We still have to deal with the flesh. They don't go away, but they have been conquered because of the death of Christ on Calvary's cross and because we have the help of the Holy Spirit. We don't walk alone in this journey with Christ. He said that he would send us the Perikletos, which is in uh, John chapter 14 and 16. He would send us one who would walk alongside us. And not only would he walk alongside us, he lives in us. He takes his abode. He makes his home in our hearts. The Holy Spirit. So we're not doing this alone. Amen? I don't want to do this alone. Matter of fact, I can't. Neither can you. So Paul's reminding the readers here that um, their previous lifestyle, the lifestyle as a, as a Gentile, uh, is to be abandoned forsaken to to not you must no longer walk as the gentiles do how do they walk in the futility of their minds well what does futility mean there's another translation that means vain or emptiness of their minds the interesting though that the gentile uh, may be a scholar and have his mind and his thoughts about all kinds of different things it's not so much that their minds are empty per se. It's that they're filled with things that lead to nowhere. Because they're not godly. You understand? You can be a scholar and a derelict. Right? Just because you have... To, in other words, you can fill your mind with garbage. The old adage, garbage in, garbage out. It's not so much futility in the mind. Vanity of your mind is in this case, and he's talking about, is the idea that what you have in your mind leads nowhere unless you have truth, the truth of Christ. Unless you practice a wisdom that you can only learn from God's Word. So you can fill your mind with a lot of things and stuff it in there if you want. Sometimes I, you know, I go like this with information and you know, try, and then notice it goes out the other ear. I mean, you know, I don't know what's going on with me. You know? It's like going to a buffet. You like everything so much, you know you're full. You just kind of go, <laughs> start stuffing it. Well, you can stuff your brain with nonsense. And what do you have? Nonsense. So, the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds and the vanity of their minds. And so they also have, and it's interesting to note, that they are darkened in their understanding. Have you ever asked yourself recently with the craziness of what's going on, the chaos that we are witnessing today in our society? Right? Have you ever asked yourself, what, how, what? I don't understand that. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. 
That's what happens when your mind is darkened. It's confirmation of Romans 1. That if because they believe not in God, he gave them up to a reprobate mind. It's a, con it's a judgment. What we see happening in America is judge God is judging us. Those who have chosen to, to abandon God then abandon themselves to darkness. And the darkness is scary. The things that it produces, the ideas that are coming out. I'm not going to bog myself down with all those things right now. That's going to be another sermon I'm working on. Talking about the ideas and the ideology that's, uh, that's very pronounced right now. So this explains this. First of all, there's a vanity in their minds. There's a darkness. Why? And what does it cause? What does it lead to? Look what it says in verse 18. Alienated from the life of God. So to be separated from God is a terrible thing. And the reason is because of the ignorance that is in them. What ignorance? Spiritual ignorance. The things of God. Why does this happen? It's due to what? Hardness of the hearts. Look at the, underline, the words. I'm going to have you underline. Darkened. Alienated. Ignorance. Due to hardness. Notice how he built his list. Darkness. We'll even go further up to verse 17. Futility. Darkened. Alienated. Ignorance due to or because of what? The hardness of the heart. You have locked God out. Not you. I'm saying the, the, the Gentiles. Those that don't know God. They have locked him out. He's locked out. Now here's the interesting thing. I looked up the word in my handy dandy concordance that I got some 50 years ago from my pastor. The pages are literally falling apart. But you can look at the word from the original Greek. And the English describes the condition of the heart. But the Greek uses a medical term to describe a callus that has been formed. Anybody have any calluses on your hands? From working and working, what happens? You get these calluses. What does a callus that's formed do? It hardened. It hardens your hand so that next time your body automatically learns how to handle the heavy things, the rough, uh, you know, things. So you, your hands are like, if I go, uh, if I shake someone's hand, they go, oh, I know you got a desk job. Yeah, I do. I sit at a desk and I write, I type all, you know, my lessons. I talk to students like I'm doing here. Got an iPad, not a hammer. That's my tool. That's. But interestingly enough, the Greek word is specifically talking about a bone that has been fractured, then it has been reset, and then when it heals, that particular part of the bone is harder than the bone itself. It will never fracture in that place again because it will fracture at a weaker spot. So the hardness is a callous heart, a cold heart. 
Because of what? What's the reason for this? We go back. Ignorance, alienation, darkness in their understanding, and futility in their minds. That's, what a, that's the condition of man without God. Amen? You see how Paul just lists it? So I don't want to spend way too much time on that, but th then again, look at verse 19. He qualifies it by saying, they have become callous. There you go. He's just describing the hardness that he, just, he mentioned in the previous verse of the heart. And have given, notice, they have given themselves up. So the things you practice, you can't say, oh, I can't help it. You have chosen those things because you have given yourself up to sensuality. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So hardness equals callous. Sensuality, could, we could look at it as this. Uh, they used to use the word licentiousness, which is the sin that flaunts itself. So it's not just that you sin, but you show it off. You brag about it. Right? You flaunt it. You throw off all kinds of restraints, and there's no sense of shame or fear of that particular behavior. Are we living in those times now or what? There's no shame. There's no regret. There's no consideration of restraint. It's not like, I think I better not do this. You know what I mean? That thing in you that says, oh man, that's not a good idea. How embarrassing. No one, that's not happening anymore. And so we see then this throwing off and this flaunting of sin. And then he talks about every, to greedy. So greed has to do with self, uh, selfishness. You're doing it for you. You only care about you. God's not in your life. You don't care what God thinks. You don't care what anyone thinks. You only do you. You do you kind of a thing, right? And uh, you tell me, because you're doing you, you tell me, do me, I do me. So you know how that goes. And so we're not responsible to God in any way, you know. Do whatever you want. And then the word here for impurity is exactly that. Not pure. Not pure. Another word, another word to describe impurity, impurity is to think of clean and then put un in front of it. Unclean. Right? And that particular word there is, a, here, here you go, listen. This is what Paul's saying happens when we're alienated from God. It's specifically reference for sexual impropriety. Isn't that interesting? The sexual revolution of the 60s has gone way beyond what they thought. And I'll leave it at that. But notice they're described here. This is, where, this is a rampant, reckless, to take the word reckless from the song, sin. Without restraint. Without consideration of offense. Without thinking of the consequence. No shame whatsoever. That's the, this, the destiny of the one who is alienated from God. So we're not surprised, are we? We have an understanding. Then Paul will move, in verse 20. 
So we need to go to the next slide there, guys, in the back, if you help me out. It says, but, transition, that's not the way you learn Christ. Right? For the first three chapters and everything we always do here, that's not what you have learned. Notice it doesn't say of Christ or from Christ, but that's not the way you learn Christ. It's not so much, it's not so important to learn of Christ. It's not so much to learn about Christ. It's to learn Christ. It's to learn about him personally. It's about a relationship with him. Not so much what he said in, in, a, in a vacuum like, oh, oh, Jesus said this. No, Jesus said that so that you would live that. So it becomes embodied. So Christian doctrine takes hands on hands and feet. The Christian belief, the Christian principles, doctrine that we've been talking about, if they don't have hands or feet, they're worthless. It's, we're just spinning our wheels and wasting our time. Paul talks about all the things you can do. For instance, burn your body, sacrifice and give yourself for others. But if you do it also without love, it also is, has no meaning. So what you do has to be directed by love, but you would do it or you're motivated to do it because of your love for Christ, just like Joseph, his love for God. In spite of the fact, and here's the interesting thing, that he was about 500 miles from his home, taken into Egypt as a slave. Nobody would have ever known that it mattered to him. Everybody else was a stranger. He could have done it and done it and repeated it. And yet he said, I will not because I don't want to offend the one who sees me and the one that I know. And that's God himself. So how do I live the Christian life? With that attitude and that understanding. Now, do you want to hurt the person you love? I don't want to pick on the couples in here, you know, or friends. You're going to purposely do something to hurt the person that you claim you love? No, you won't. Not if you're healthy. Amen? This next section, and I'm going to get through it here. It looks like I got like 15 to 20 minutes, so I think we'll be okay, right? So that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So the question would be, is the place where you worship and where you go to hear a sermon allowing you to hear about Christ? Assuming you have heard about him. You were taught in him as the truth is in Christ, in Jesus. I told you, and I mean it again, when I stop talking about Jesus up here, you need to fire me. Get yourself a pastor that loves the Lord enough to teach you about him. I'm not feeling threatened at all because that's all I do. That's a stick to the word. Try to explain it. That's all I can do. That's who I am. I know who I am and I know what God has called me to do. And you should have the same understanding of your calling. You understand why you're here and you know what he's called you to do and you're here to learn of Christ. 
right? You hear him and you learn and you're taught in the truth. And then he says, put off the old self. Some translations will say, put off the old man, which is the description of our sinful nature before we knew Christ, right? Which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt uh, through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is all describing the born-again experience. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So at the beginning of verse 22, it says, put off, at verse 20, what? The old self, and then put on the new self. So I purposely decided to wear this jacket today up here, not because I'm cold, but I want to do a demonstration. It's telling us to take off the old self. Did I, am I doing it? Am I actually using the effort? Take off the old self and put on the new one. Hi. God, this one's tighter. <laughs> My goodness. I'm going to have to do this. Get it? This is I had bought like about five years ago. That one I bought last year. <laughs> My goodness. I'm going to have to reduce the panza. <laughs> so, put off the gray jacket and put on the black one. The very words used here by Paul describe someone who puts on a different set of clothing. That's what the Greek alludes to. See, we lose a little bit in translation. It's understandable. Those of us that know English and Spanish know you can't literally every time in language expression get the same words out, but you have ways of doing it culturally in the language depending on what country you're from, right? If you go to South America and say chévere, that means like that's uh, cool, uh, but in Mexico you say que padre, which means that's real father. That doesn't make any sense in English. Que padre. What a dad. Uh, weirdo. Get away from me. You know, but in Spanish, you know exactly what it means. You don't translate it literally. Paul uses the words from the Greek that describe a taking off old clothing, a garment. Notice what Paul doesn't do. I'm going to show it to you. He doesn't say, let's just imagine this is the old one so I don't have to go through it. He doesn't say keep the old one and put the new one on top of it. He doesn't say that. I look pretty intimidating up here, don't I now? I'm buff and everything. He doesn't say that because the old wine skins are thrown out and new wine has to be put into new wine skins. Otherwise, the old wine skins burst. The new wine is the description of the new life. Paul, uh, rather Jesus, talked about that in one of his parables. So he doesn't say do this. It does look pretty cool though, huh? I'll be trending pretty soon. He says take it off the old and put on the new. Right? See, that's one of the mistakes we think. I'm going to be a little bit worldly and a little bit spiritual. Well, you know, that's the most frustrating kind of life to live because it's like being, having a foot in the world and having a foot in Christ. You can't. It's like 
that song. I'm a little bit country. I'm a little bit rock and roll. Yuck! What? No, go rock and roll all the way. Not our country. You can't be both. Either are or you aren't born again. I hate to put it to you so directly, but that's exactly what he's saying. Take off the old person, put on the new, and live and walk in the new. So I'll give you another example. Now I'm hot. I'll take this off. Hey, I don't tell the Spanish church. I want to do this again. <laughs> Just throw these here. It's actually kind of cold in here. You guys are... So what I think another way to look at this is if you're a prisoner who's got released from prison, right, and you're still wearing your prison clothes and acting like a prisoner out in the world as a free man, what are people going to do with you when they see you in that orange jumpsuit? Yeah, I'm taking this orange prison with me forever. You're not going to have a lot of friends. You might actually get harassed by the law. No, you take it off, and what do you do? You put on new clothes. Amen? Okay, so now, Paul's going to describe some of the specifics of what the new person does and, with, and the, what is the old life and the new life. Therefore, having put away falsehood, one of the things we remove is being dishonest, lying. Christians don't lie. Why? Because we know the one who says, I am the truth. It's the truth that set us free. Why would we need to lie? Right? The, the new man tells the truth. The Christian standard is truth. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to deceive. We don't have to be dishonest. We don't have to do those things. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Hey, if you always tell the truth, you don't have to try and remember what you said. Because you said the truth. But the problem with a lie is then you've got to cover up with another lie because you forgot the first one that you said. So then you come up with another lie and another lie. And you build this big old mountain where your whole life is a lie. And everything about you is deceitful or not honest. He brings us out of that into the truth. It says, be angry and do not sin. The Christian, supposed, the Christian can be angry? Of course. It's called righteous indignation. We're to be angry with evil. We're to be angry with lies and corruption and, and sin itself. But we're not to sin. And he even gives us kind of a little bit of a timeline. You should practice this. I have, and I love it. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. By the time sunset comes, let it go. All right? New man gets angry over uh, righteous things. We're not to sin. And the new man knows how to let it go. Right? And uh, therefore, you would, verse 27 would say, you, by letting it go, you don't give opportunity to the devil. Because if you let it simmer... If you let bitterness and, uh, and, and uh, resentment and those things that cause you hatred to, to, to simmer in your heart, then that's how you will eventually sin. So you let it go. What is it? How does, how does one 
be angry without sinning. Well, Jesus showed us the way. And that's the way we should always think of. He overturned the tables in the temple, remember? He was not angry because his feelings were hurt. He was not angry because uh, he felt ignored. He wasn't angry because people were uh, um, necessarily making a profit. He was angry because those people in the temple were preventing people from knowing God. So he was righteously indignant. There are things to be angry about. The church needs to be a little bit angrier in the sense of the things that we allow or how we don't speak up when it comes to truth. The world's not in any way ashamed to tell you what the, I was going to say the crap they believe in. And I thought maybe that might not be a good word, but it is not bad after all because look, you guys are still here. That's what it is, people. We do not sin and be angry. It's be angry but sin not. And don't let your, the sun go down on your anger. In other words, there's a time to let it go. Usually by sundown. Now this is, is interesting is what he's actually saying though is don't let it linger too long. But there are things to be angry about. And do not give any opportunity to the devil because you heard, hey, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Well, that's so true about Satan. Give him an inch and he'll take all that he can. Don't let his foot in the door. Right, George? No, I just, I just open the door a little bit. Mm -mm. Don't open the door a little bit. Because once he gets his foot in there, it's going to be take a lot more to get him out. Trouble is on his way, correct. So, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. In other words, get a job. Why are you stealing? You go, go provide for yourself. Do the right thing, right? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone else. What should you do? Work to provide. Don't steal. There's an interesting one here, I think. I've always looked at this and I think, do you know that the original sin of Adam had to do with stealing? I know, he rebelled, I get it. He, uh, he, was un he had unbelief. He didn't trust God enough that he listened to the serpent believed what the serpent had to say and then he rebelled against God by partaking of the fruit of the forbidden tree. But you know that his sin was that of a thief. He took what didn't belong to him. He should have been working. He had too much free time. Right? And guess what? That got him as a thief. Kicked out of paradise. God's word is serious. The same thing would be true for us if we're stealing time from our employer or not doing our taxes correctly. That's stealing. That's stealing. Hope you can get a good night's sleep if you do it the right way and you leave it where it goes. Now, don't tell me and lecture me about that. I pay my taxes during the year and after when they send you owe us money. 
I sent in the check. Because you know what happens if you don't? I'll go ahead and share the story. I decided when I was in my mid-twenties not to pay my taxes. I'm not even going to file. Did it for a couple years. And one day I was working at Circuit City. It was, some, it was Christmas season, the busiest season of the year. I was so excited about my check. It was going to be like three times what I normally got. I was real excited at the end of, like, New Year's. I was going to get my check. I had sold a lot of stuff. We were on commissions at some level there. I won't, I'll tell you. I was going to make, like, $5,000, and that was, like, 35 years ago for one month, which wasn't happening very often back in those days. And I remember I get to get my check, and I open it up, and it's $250. What is legally required by the government to leave you? They took it. All. They said I stole from them. I know we can get into all kind of political questions and comments about the government's corrupt and the government this. Jesus said when he was passing through and traveling and he had to pay a traveling tax, uh, they asked him, hey, what do we do? And he'll go fishing and there's going to be a fish with a coin in its mouth. Give it to him. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I get it. I get it. It's not fair. But I'm trying to say though that if we withhold or if we take something that doesn't belong to us, that's called being a thief. And I think uh, Paul doesn't mention it just because that's our old way of living. We don't need what someone else has. He, will, he said that he would meet all our needs according to his riches in heaven. God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in heaven. Well, I don't have much. You have what he wants you to have. If you're responsible for little, then he may make you responsible for much. But you have to prove that you can be responsible and a good steward of little before he's willing or can trust you with much. It's like the guy who said, oh, pastor, you know, it's getting really hard to tithe. I go, really? Not really me saying this. I've heard this story. What's going on? Well, I'm making way more money than I used to. And of course, then the tithe goes up. And the pastor says, I'm going to pray that God brings your salary back to what it used to be. Well, hold on a minute. So instead of making 10000 a month, we're just praying for God to bring your salary back to 1000 I mean, fair is fair, right? The Lord would say in Malachi... To the nation of Israel, they have robbed me. And they asked, chapter 3, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Who would rob God? That's my point. You can't. He, he'll, he's aware of it. Excuse me. <coughs> We're almost done. I'll let that go. Let you chew on it a little bit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I believe that in context, he's talking about all the things he just mentioned. About the old life. About, in this case, he's talking about 
Um, I mean, I kind of went past a verse. Stealing, he's talking about anger. He's talking about falsehood, lying. He's talking about the old nature that we supposedly put off. He says, if you allow those things, then you grieve the Holy Spirit. Also, I forgot verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So the new man watches his tongue. That's what it's saying. You can always tell someone that's a kingdom person from someone that's not by their speech. You know? The language that comes from someone that lives in darkness is uh, filled with complaining and murmuring, fault-finding, cynicism, criticism, cursing, and lying. That's what you'll find from someone who's coming from the kingdom of darkness. But the person who lives in the kingdom of life and the kingdom of light, they're always speaking graciously, kindly, and having thanksgiving and hope in the things they say. I love the person when you ask them how they're doing. They always say, I'm blessed. Love it. How about you? Oh, but I heard that your car got crushed. I'm blessed. But your dog ran away. I'm blessed. But didn't they just fire you last week? I'm blessed. Um... Why? Because we have a new heart. Not because we have new circumstances. We have a new heart. In spite of the circumstances. Right? So there's no reason for us, I, I believe, and the, one of the ways that we grieve the Holy Spirit is with our anger and with our bitterness and, and with our lying and, and with our losing our temper and being angry without a justifiable reason. You know, um, it's not that God's going to be necessarily shocked or it's not like God is surprised or anything like that. There's nothing about that here. It's not so much how it affects him, although it does. It's more about how it affects you. You know, bitterness and anger and hatred is like poison in your heart. It corrodes. You know what I'm talking about if you lived there before. It doesn't hurt anybody else. They don't even know. Maybe someone that hurt you and you're like all angry at them for like 25 years. They've been having party after party and don't even think about you. And yet you have allowed your heart to be corroded because you can't let it go and give it to Christ. So he goes on and says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Notice the way the putting off, like the jacket, put it off. And put on what? Put on the Spirit. Put on the righteous robes of Christ. Because that's what happens when we become born again. Be kind to one another. I know it sounds silly. I'm really trying to teach my class, my students, my high schoolers. They're so mean. They say things to each other that are like unbelievable. I hear it. I'm walking sometimes with them from they pass the classes and the things they're talking about, they don't even care that I'm there. I'm all walking like with them and I'm hearing this and did you hear what happened with oh, that, blah, 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 and this, mm, 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 and I'm like going, hey, I'm here. Hello. 
right? They, they just have this meanness, this bullying is a problem. And not only just physical, but social media bullying. So I say, like it says here, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. I start off by teaching them this. When they cuss, all I do is say, language. And I don't say another word. I don't get mad. I don't get angry. And then after about like two weeks, the same guy that likes to throw out all those fancy sailor vocabulary words, I just go, language. Guess what they start doing? They say the word, but then the very next word is, sorry, Mr. Korea. And I just look at them and say, language. After a while, they learn. See, it's something you can think about. But hopefully what I can do is also, like they're, I was saying, they're, they're mean to each other. They're bullies a lot of times. I just say this little, um, little phrase, be nice, eat rice. And they look at me like I'm some kind of weirdo. But guess what they're doing after a little while? They say that to the person that's mean. Hey, be nice, eat rice. Why do I say it like that? So they remember the rhyme. But here's the most important thing. They actually begin to be nice. In my classroom at least. Because you create a standard. An expectation. God has given us the greatest standard and expectation when we receive the Holy Spirit. Could you let Him live out of you and through you? That's how it's done. Because you're aware of what He's asking you to do. That's how it happens. It's Him in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now say it with one way too. I've been asked this as a pastor many, many times. How, how, how? If you get around uranium long enough and hang around with it radiation right if you hang around it long enough what's going to happen to your body it's going to have it's going to get contagious or it's going to be radioactive and that's all you did was hang around it for a while but some people say well how does that work with the with the Holy Spirit. If you don't grieve the Spirit by not doing these things, He will change you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. You're so good to us and given us your word and instruction. Help us, Lord, as we went through each one of these verses to allow them to penetrate our hearts and to make a decision that we want to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling, that we, Lord, do not want to do, practice those things that grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead we want to cooperate, we want to collaborate, we want to yield to the Holy Spirit so that we can see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, which will always produce in us life and, and joy and peace. And all of these things that we know that the Holy Spirit would do in our hearts. Change us, transform us, make us new as we put off the old nature and we put on the new. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.